Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Michael Murphy and Dr. Nimit Jindal. Dr. Murphy is a Pharmacy Advancement Fellow at The Ohio State University, where he also graduated with his PharmD. He served as the 2018-2019 APHA ASP National President and member of the APHA Board of Trustees, and currently teaches and researches healthcare policy and advocates for increased access to healthcare at The Ohio State University. Dr. Jindal is a community-based pharmacy resident at UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy, practicing at Moose Pharmacy in Concord, North Carolina. Originally from New Jersey, he graduated in 2019 from Rutgers with his PharmD, and was from 2019 to 2020, he served as the APHA ASP National President and member of APHA Board of Trustees. The reason I wanted you both on here today was actually because you guys just started a new blog called The Grassroots Pharmacist and wrote about the HEROES Act, which was recently passed by the United States House Representatives. Can you guys dive into that a little bit for me and kind of what all it entails? Sure. I'd happy to, I'd be happy to take a stab at that, Eric. And I, I do want to preface this um, explanation with saying that the Grassroots Pharmacist blog that Nimmin and I started is an independent project. And um, the opinions that we share there are not necessarily representative of the opinions of our employers or any outside organizations. So um, the HEROES Act, this was a huge 1,800-word bill that was introduced into Congress earlier this month. And um, it was introduced by uh, Representative Nita Lowey from New York. And you can really see that this was a priority for the House of Representatives because it was introduced on May 12th and was already passed out of the House by May 15th. So there's a lot of different pieces of this bill. And from what I've read about the HEROES Act, what they were really trying to do was fill in some of the gaps that were previously there, previously uh, created from some of the past COVID-19 relief acts. So I'll talk about a couple different pieces of these, and then I know Nimit has uh, researched some of this as well, and, and he'll be able to fill in some of the gaps that I leave out. One of the, uh, the most important areas that really impacts the profession of pharmacy is the fact that this legislation designates pharmacists as essential workers. So this is not rocket science. You know, I know, we all know that pharmacists are essential workers, but you know, it's really important for us to be labeled that in these pieces of legislation because there are different different rules that apply to essential workers. And specifically in this piece of legislation, there is premium premium pay if an employer that a essential worker works for applies for and receives a grant from the U.S. government. So this is an important thing, and it's just really encouraging to see Congress continue to recognize the importance of pharmacists during the pandemic relief efforts. A couple of other areas that are really important in the HEROES Act is some proposed changes that Congress is requesting around the drug manufacturing system and the drug distribution system. So within the HEROES Act, they specifically call out for plans for the U.S. to be completely independent of any other countries in their medication manufacturing system. So this is, this is huge and has huge implications for the practice of pharmacy because we know that looking at the overall drug manufacturing system, 
a huge majority of medications are made in other countries. And the thought that we could move and become a completely independent of other countries in our medication manufacturing system could have positive implications on patients that could have negative therapeutic outcomes because maybe they don't get access to their medications because of a drug shortage. This could have really positive implications for patients in the U.S., but we we have to also ask the question around what implications and consequences may come to other countries, to the, the health care of foreign workers and to the global economy if the U.S. becomes a true independent manufacturing system for their medications. Uh, the, the last piece I wanted to talk about was with these big pieces of legislation, there's huge assistance that is being proposed to be given to states and local and tribal governments. And these are really important because, as we know, patients can have decreased health outcomes if they lose access to their health care. And several of the pieces of this bill talk about increasing access to Medicaid. Right now, there are there's dollars that would be set aside in this bill that would be to better fund different Medicaid programs for different states and increasing access to programs like food stamps. There's a lot of research out there that shows that food stamps um, and, and food insecurity can have decreased impacts on medication adherence. So we know that you know, things like food security can impact patient health. So it's encouraging to see these different components and how they may impact both overall healthcare and the practice of pharmacy. Now, I know, Nimit, you looked into a couple other points of this bill. Do you want to talk about those? Yeah, thanks, Michael. And, and thanks again, Eric, uh, for having us. You know, I one of the things that I think COVID-19 has showed us is that this this pandemic is a public health crisis, but we're also seeing this as being severe, uh, a severe economic crisis. And one of the things that we're noticing, and I think we've known, but we didn't know to what degree, is how closely correlated and linked an economic crisis is to a public health catastrophe. So like Michael had talked a lot about the different components of the public health apparatuses of the bill and the changes that it makes. Uh, but let's not forget that the impetus for House Democrats to push this through was a lot of the economic situation and grief that we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks. You know, I think two weeks ago, we've had, we crossed 36, I think we're maybe around 37, 38 million people who were unemployed. We're, we're around 15% of overall unemployment. And so some of the things that we've got to see is when you have this massive economic catastrophe, what are the implications on health? And I know in the pharmacy space and, and as a community practicing pharmacist myself, we talk a lot about social determinants of health and how not having food security can impact a patient's health. Not having access to adequate housing has effects on patient's health. And so what's been encouraging to see is that there is a lot of other parts of this bill that I think indirectly um, have significant benefits to patients' health. So we talk about unemployment benefits. Northwards of 15% of the American population um, is outside of work. This the Bureau of Labor Statistics projects that that number could be a little bit higher because it doesn't account for, for people who are just not registered in the system. And then so what we'll see here is we've expanded, or, or the House Democrats have expanded $600 a week that is going to go to help uh, patients pay their bills, help them buy food, help them take care of, of daily essentials that they need. Uh, another round of $1,200 stimulus payments, um, which I know is going to go a long way. The patients that I serve, for example, are in rural North Carolina. And when you talk to them about their stimulus payments and how 
the money that they get allows them to afford the copays for their chronic disease medications. That has severe implications on health uh, nonetheless. Michael talked a little bit about health insurance payments, which you know our latest our latest post on the blog talks a lot about what is the impact of Medicaid and why does additional state funding or additional federal dollars to state budgets matter. You'll see additional funding to the Paycheck Protection Program. I don't think it's news to anybody that you know there was a huge that the funds that were designated by the federal government dried up pretty quickly. And now a lot of small businesses aren't having access to essential capital that they need to keep their businesses afloat, to keep their employers paid. And then some of the other pieces you see are, I think one of the significant applications to healthcare is a healthcare provider relief funds. And what this fund essentially allows for is it's about $100 billion that the federal government has set aside that would basically compensate or reimburse providers for lost revenue that they've had this year compared to last year as it relates to COVID-19. So let let me, I kind of want to break here and share a little bit about why this particular part is important. I work, like I said, in rural North Carolina. And one of the things that we have seen more so is that independent family physician practices are really struggling under this pandemic. They have lost a significant amount of revenue. And for a lot of patients who live in rural communities, their major healthcare access points are pharmacies and these local providers. And if there is no mechanism to help keep these practices afloat, one of the, we'll see significant negative impacts down the line regarding access to healthcare. And so I think that having this money set aside to help reimburse or keep these provider practices afloat is incredibly important. You know, in the news, one of the things that gets hammered every single day is how much money hospitals need not just to keep their daily operating budgets going on, but to make sure that they have protective personal equipment for their employees as well. Um, But I think this is even more so important in rural communities because even in the status quo before COVID-19, these systems, these areas were severely underfunded. And I think it's a good thing that Congress has stepped in and realized that this is an area that they need to address. And then one of the other areas that we've seen uh, Congress take on with the HEROES Act is increasing the enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act. Now, we saw some states like California have separate windows, a two month, a three month window for people who lost insurance coverage because they lost their jobs to sign up for health insurance. But the White House and the federal government as a whole has basically said that they're not going to open up the Affordable Care Act exchanges. And what this means is that for a lot of people who have lost their jobs, so they're no longer on employer based health coverage, who don't qualify for Medicaid because the states didn't you know, expand it or because they don't fall within a certain income bracket, these people have no viable coverage left. And in a pandemic where access to healthcare services is essential, I think it's a very good move by the federal government to, to open up at least the enrollment for these Affordable Care Act exchanges. Yeah. And I'm going to kind of work this back a little bit here because there's a lot hit on there. But one of the things you said was the $100 billion, with a B, dollars for healthcare losses this year. I think that's huge, not just for the hospitals, but I was reading via, I think it was IQVIA, was one of the major healthcare stats websites I tend to look at. And they said, I don't know if it's RX or prescription spending or volume was down upwards of 40-something percent. So you're seeing, you know, even like the, the major chains and even like the little independent mom and pop places where we're getting hit. And I know my store, since I work for a bigger chain, 
we've seen our hours cut drastically since this started for just technician help and for pharmacist help. And, you know, with all of a sudden that the people don't have insurance and they don't have access and we don't have the staffing, you're just losing out on all those possible health conditions that could be treated, prevented and costing you money down the line, wherever it, it may occur, whether it be in death or other healthcare related outcomes. You also exactly. mentioned, yeah, and, Go ahead. and we were not in an ideal system before the pandemic. There were widespread issues with dispensing fees with uh, pharmacy benefit managers prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, yeah. And the fact that now there's, you know, even more potential loss of revenue, patients not um, being able to treat their chronic health conditions. All of this is going to have, you know, acute complications right now during the pandemic. But what is going to happen in the long term? I mean, all of these patients with chronic health conditions that maybe were controlled before, um, maybe they're not able to get the same access to health care because some of these family physician offices close. And then there could be widespread long term economic ramifications as well, in, as well as the therapeutic consequences. Yeah, and I think Nimit hit it too, saying that he works in you know more rural North Carolina. I work in inner city, you know, Cleveland, Ohio, and although they're very different, you know, demographically, the funding for a lot of those is the same. And if you're seeing those type of pharmacies close up, even in like a more urban setting like where I work now, people who rely on public transportation can't get to another pharmacy, or it's that much more burdensome for them. Or where like Nimit works, you know, it's more rural. Now, if he closes up, how many more people have to go that much further or it disconnects them from the healthcare system even more because of that? That's a, that's a very good point to bring up there. The other thing that you guys kind of mentioned on too here, uh, the food security part, I think is huge. That was a, that's important to health because we know even as pharmacists, a lot of time we have to educate people on what to eat, how to eat, things like that. And I think it's really this one thing you point out there, Michael, was how much the the health care economy and the health crisis with the pandemic is our overall economy based on, you know, that we are a service based industry and healthcare does make up almost 20 percent of the U.S. GDP. A few other things you hit on there was pharmacists as essential workers, which I think is huge because I can't believe we weren't already especially since every governor basically mandated if there's one place to be open, it's grocery stores and pharmacies. So you, you can't get much more essential than that except for the hospitals. So I think that really kind of hits on it. And the other thing was the independent drug manufacturing, bringing that back to the United States. A uh, quick shout out for this book, but if anyone's ever read Bottle of, Bottle of Lies by Catherine Eban, hits directly on this topic and some of the issues about offshoring your drug manufacturing chains. So with that, what are your guys' uh, thoughts on this bill? Michael, if you want to go first. Uh, so I think this is a, a really important piece of legislation. You know, there's 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 some political components to this bill, but I think that it has big implications on the practice of pharmacy. And you know, we are we are healthcare professionals. We are essential providers of healthcare. And the fact that a lot of the pieces of this piece of legislation are really about helping to increase that access to healthcare when so many individuals are going through challenging situations, challenging financial situations, challenging health conditions that they're dealing with, both acute and chronic. I think that the potential benefits of this piece of legislation are, are really important. Uh, Nimit, what, what are your thoughts on the bill? You know, and here's, I definitely think we need this, right? I, I think that that goes without saying is that the need for this bill is there. My, my frustration over the last couple of weeks has, has sort of been this. I practice in North Carolina. My dad is a pharmacist in New Jersey. And when we talk about 
just healthcare and what the environment looks like, it's been it's been frustrating to see that every state is incredibly different with how it's managing its response. Yeah, very um, much. But so. what we do know, and and it's it's frustrating for me as a healthcare provider. It's frustrating for the patients because when I got patients to come into the pharmacy, you know, they're hearing five different things from five different sources, and it's hard to to get your mind around what is the one thing that we ought to be doing. We know the science is the same. We know the advice from the public health experts are the same, but the strategy to tackle this public health crisis has been less than coordinated, uh, and that's putting it mildly. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of encouraged to see is that at least now we're starting to see some framework from our national leaders, from the federal government, about what a national strategy would look like. And putting in the components, putting in the criteria to basically say, this is the standard that all states need to abide by. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that the CDC put out some recommendations. It seemed like the White House was going to get behind it and and start putting together language of what was going to be a national strategy. And then within a week after that, we saw Georgia, South Carolina and, and some other states open. And then it became a free for all. And whatever the standards were that the White House or that the CDC were, were pushing out, I would argue that 47 of the states in the country aren't even abiding by those metrics. And so you know, we're, there's no way that we're going to get ahead of this virus. There is no way that we're going to get any sort of control on this pandemic if we don't have a national strategy. And I think that this bill lays the framework for it to do so. And I think that's the encouraging piece for me. What I'm excited or what I'm hopeful for um, is the fate of this bill is uncertain when we get to the Senate side. And so I don't know how much of a drive or how much of a of a trigger this is really going to allow the country to, to, to get behind in terms of creating a national strategy. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I know on the uh, on the right side of the political aisle, you have Mitch McConnell, who controls the Senate, obviously, and Nancy Pelosi on the left, who controls the House. And there couldn't be much more different people leading there. But with McConnell, there, he's very much like a well, wait and see, let's see where this goes, and a states' rights person. And I understand some of the states have you know tax issues and their own financial burdens. We saw in Ohio, where me and Michael both practice, that there was major cuts even to like some of the healthcare spending, just because the states really need to kind of shore up the uh, the deficit they're facing from the lack of income tax revenue and things like that. But I did like that point you really called out there, Nimit, about, yes, this is more of a national strategy and the framework for that, which, because the pandemic doesn't care what state you're in. It doesn't care if you're in Georgia, if you're in California or Texas or Ohio, wherever you're from. It It's going to affect people based upon the movement and the spread of the disease just as it naturally evolves. So that's a good call out there. Do you think... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and, and the other thing to think about is, you know, never before has it ever been clearer that what what other people do in terms of managing their health affects the people around them. So when we look at wearing face masks, for example, right, the CDC guidelines and recommendations are to wear face masks. The thing to understand is that wearing a face mask doesn't necessarily protect you from, from, from having the disease transmitted to you. The purpose of the face mask is to prevent you from giving it to other people. Right. And so, you know, the, the public health strategy in this country has got to be, what are we doing to help making to help make sure that people are protecting other people and without any sort of national infrastructure or any sort of national guidance to tackle that mission? It's next to impossible to make that happen. 
Yeah, and I tend to follow a little bit more. I'm a very middle ground person politically, but I love the idea behind some of the libertarian policies of like, you know, do what's best for you, pick your own thing. But this is one where they kind of fell off the map where they said, I shouldn't have to wear a mask. It's my own rights. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, but you can kill the person next to you here. That's very different. Right. <laughs> uh, and and it, it almost reminds you of the quote. It's It's not about what your country can do for you, but it's about what you can do for your country. And, yeah. and you wearing a mask is... You know, in, in, in a way, being patriotic and caring about the health and well-being of your country. And I think that's an important point that, that Nimit and you are, are discussing here. Yeah, no, totally. And, you know, kind of harkening back to that timeline even a little bit earlier, uh, my great-grandparents, and I'm sure your guys' too, went through the Great Depression, as did my grandparents. And I remember going to their house and actually finding leftover of the uh, rationing stamps. And they thought it was their patriotic duty not to use all of them. So if someone else needed it more, they could leave it for them. Now, they were farmers, so they could provide for themselves a little bit. But obviously, you know, this is a time where we're not even asking you to ration food. You can still go eat McDonald's. You can still go do whatever. But just please wear a mask and wash your hands. It's a very <laughs> a very baby step in compared to what was, you know, what, or what could be like, you know, another big depression or recession like that was back then. So with that, uh, do you guys think the Senate is going to take this up or where do you think it will be amended and how do you think that could impact pharmacists? Any, any kind of predictions on that, if you could speculate? Well, if there's anything I've learned uh, in the last three years is you shouldn't predict anything anymore. <laughs> that, that government is pretty much the worst place to, to predict. I'd have a better chance of guessing if Rutgers is going to win the NCAA football championships. <laughs> um, but you know, with that saying is, you know, I don't, I don't think so that uh, that the the Senate is going to pick this up, um, partly because you've had uh, a number of, of senators on the on the other side of the aisle that have come out and said that this thing is dead on arrival. It doesn't seem like the White House is, is any inclination to wanting to um, pass another bill for any kind of stimulus fund. A lot of the arguments that they have said is a, we need to be a little bit, we need to start practicing some fiscal austerity, which whatever, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's the right approach when we start seeing some of the, the numbers that point to the economic uh, devastation that, that this pandemic is causing. Um, but also when you look at what the strategy for them is, they want to see how is the current money being spent. So the House already passed $2 trillion. The Fed has pumped in trillions of dollars into the economy. So they're looking at is how do we see how the money is being spent? The problem with that is this. We're seeing how the money is being spent. The Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, that was funded, we saw a series of multi-million dollar corporations take out loans, and a lot of small businesses weren't able to get the money because the banks never got the money from the federal government. And so I don't see that there's been a strategy for even the previous bills uh, or laws that Congress has passed. To tackle, I think, the second part of your question about, you know, where do I think that there's possible amend, like uh, amendments that are coming? You know, I anticipate Republicans have talked a lot about wanting to push for liability insurance. I think that there might be some level of medical liability that providers, whether they're physicians or pharmacists, are going to have to take on. Um, and I think one of the other issues that we might see is is Democrats or, or some group pushing for national OSHA standards to what are the requirements that businesses have to adopt in order to open those businesses in the first place. You know, but regardless of the politics uh, of whether or not Republicans say they're going to or not going to, you know, one of the things that we have to remember is that this is an election year. 
there is a presidential election that has significant consequences in November. And I would be shocked if Congress and the White House did not do something to pass some kind of stimulus or some kind of relief bill, given the political ramifications uh, that are to occur if, if nobody passes anything. Any thoughts Nimit, there, Michael? I, yeah, I, I appreciated Nimit bringing up the, um, some of the challenges that we have recognized for some small businesses and in, in getting uh in getting some of the loans from some of the past COVID-19 relief packages and this is a little bit outside the the pharmacy world but i think it's still you know applicable to to our conversation my my wife works on a her parents uh small family dairy farm they were really interested in hearing about and learning about some of these relief and, and grants that they could get as a small you know local business and, but they, the, the complications around applying for some of these grants and the fact that initially you needed to um, receive help from a bank really put some barriers in, in, in helping these small businesses like my, my wife's small family farm. So I, I think it's pretty, pretty encouraging to see um, where there will be additional assistance if there is the ability for this to move through the Senate and the White House and in some of the same shapes that it has right now and some of the same pieces of the legislation. But, you know, we'll we'll have to see. And I, I think that Nimit really hit the nail on the head when he said that we can't really predict. Uh, predictions have kind of gone out the window here. And and, you know, we're we're living in a, you know, once a century event right now with this pandemic. So, you know, I, I think that we just have to cross our fingers and see what happens on the other side. Yeah, I think I think the uh, not predicting predictions is probably the most accurate thing anyone said on this podcast. But uh, th- that aside, I do think that it does show that we need to be able to better plan for major health uh, pandemics like this as a country and really as a world because so many nations were just left flat-footed when this hit them. All right, so there was another part in there about COVID-19 testing, and we've seen a lot of pharmacies kind of take to this. Do you guys have any thoughts on that part of it or what you, if it's going to expand or what you think could, could blossom out of that? Yeah, I think this is a really important and interesting piece of the of the legislation when it comes to testing. I mean, we know we've, we've been seeing the, the reports constantly. We've been seeing things on the news. We know that testing is such an important piece of this puzzle in helping to, to overcome this pandemic. So there are a couple different pieces in uh, the HEROES Act that specifically talk about COVID-19. Just a few that I wanted to, to bring up here. Um, they are requesting for specific plans and proposals on how to ramp up testing across the country. And the important piece here that, that really got me excited when I was reading this, uh, the HEROES Act, was they specifically call out pharmacy and pharmacists, and they want pharmacists at the table to, to be a member of this planning team and to hear about ways that we can increase access to COVID-19 being performed by pharmacists and at pharmacies. And I think that really shows, um, you know, what we are seeing across the media. I mean, just like you were saying, Eric, pharmacies were one of the only places at the, at the peak across our country that remained open. And I think that really shows the importance of pharmacies in their communities in helping to ensure access to healthcare. A few other points I, I feel like are pretty important is We've seen and we've heard that as testing efforts have ramped up in different states, 
one, some patient populations um, have not had the same increase in access to COVID-19 tests. Specifically, we've seen that uh, neighborhoods where potentially the, the primary uh, individuals that uh, make up the population of the neighborhood are individuals that make up minority populations, uh, they may not have the same access to some of these COVID-19 tests. So there are specific uh, pieces of language in this bill that talk about what are ways that we're going to overcome this barrier to healthcare for these specific patient populations. And of course, we've seen this in the, the past COVID-19 relief packages. There's a lot of information about cost sharing. You know, we, we want to make sure that the barrier of paying for a test is not something that is going to keep an individual from going out and getting tested. We don't want that individual to, to go out and say, well, I, I was feeling a little bit bad yesterday, but I'll keep going to work or I'll go out to the grocery store, even if I'm showing symptoms. We want them to go get tested and, if necessary, quarantine themselves to ensure the further spread of this disease is stopped. So there's additional information there about helping with cost sharing, trying to uh, close the gaps in some for some individuals that still have to pay for tests and making for individuals that previously had to pay for tests um, retroactive coverage so that they may be able to get some reimbursement for whatever they paid for the test previously. So there's a lot of important pieces here. All of this is specifically applicable to pharmacists because we know in the future that pharmacists are going to be a big piece of this puzzle in providing tests and in helping whenever there's a vaccination coming out. So um, I know I spoke a, spoke a lot about there about tests, but but Nima, what what else do you think? Anything else that I missed? Yeah, Michael, I think you you pretty much nailed it right on the head. You know, we as a country have have a pretty tricky history with testing in regards to this pandemic. And, you know, I, I think that that's one of the things that has been enunciated again and again and again, is that how vital testing is going to be. And access and cost are going to be two of the major barriers that we have to overcome. And if we're going to try and identify a partner that is uniquely positioned to bridge or address those barriers, I think it's going to be pharmacy. I think you, Eric, and your listeners all know that 85 to 90% of Americans live within five miles of a pharmacy. So access, it's right there. And the cost piece is the one that I think, I hope Congress and the federal government figure out. It's been encouraging to see a lot of language at the state level and at the federal level with HHS coming out and directly calling out pharmacists and the role they have to play in COVID-19 testing. The concern that I have is that while the language is great, one of the things that they don't address is the financial mechanism. It doesn't address the reimbursement component of the COVID-19 tests. And so I think that that's the next barrier that we have to climb over to really make sure that pharmacy is not just well positioned, but they have all the right tools, the resources and the support to go out there and make meaningful differences to help improve testing capacities in the country. Yeah. And I think that's huge. You hit that on the head. The financial piece is always like the... Uh can tilt it one way or another when it comes to some of these bills and if it's going to be effective or not effective, especially when it comes to areas like you work that are a little more rural where the testing sites might be a little more limited for people, but they can still be affected by it just like somebody who lives in a bigger city. So that's huge. Just to kind of give a little perspective for some of the listeners here, I actually had people at my pharmacy who tested positive for COVID-19 and had to go get follow-up testing. And I also had people who didn't test positive but were suspected cases. 
And the cost for those tests, depending on where they went, went from zero dollars when they went to like some of the clinics, but they'd be like the uh, government funded ones or actually some, one of them was even in a major chain pharmacy parking lot. They didn't charge them at all. But another person had to pay $80, and then when they went back later, had to pay 150 So we, I mean, this this price spectrum, this price issue, like you said, is all across the map. And they had to get retested before they can come back to work. So for some people, it was zero. For some people, it was 150 Who knows? It was basically just throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks for a price as far as as far as far I can tell amongst most people. Yeah, and, and you know, like I think from the federal government's, you know, we, we remember those infamous words, you know, everybody, anybody who wants a test can get a test. And and when the federal government first came out with a testing strategy, it was limited to patients who met a very narrow set of criteria. Yep. And then when we realized that that narrow criteria wasn't providing us the coverage we wanted, we improved it. It was still narrow, but we grew it. We grew it up even further. And now I think we've gotten to a point where most people can qualify to get a test, but the problem then becomes: can those people who qualify actually pay for it? And if they're in minority populations. Uh, or, or geographic locations where there's a higher group of minorities, or if they're in a popular or a geographic area where there is a higher group of impoverished or, or people who are living below the poverty line, the data shows that those people just can't get the tests from an access perspective and from a financial perspective. And noticing how the majority of people who are either minorities or who are under the poverty line are those who are deemed quote unquote essential workers. Yeah. We're not we're not doing we're not doing ourselves any favors. You know, we're 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 coming out with one strategy, but then starting the race by shooting ourselves in the foot. So I think that there's a lot of things that we need to start thinking about differently, that we need to approach differently to make sure that we're 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 targeting people who who have risk levels that are higher than others. And I hope that some of the language that Michael talked about in regards to testing in the bill make significant or meaningful improvements in allowing us to tackle testing. I, I think that. You know, we've, we've been talking about a couple different points here that, I mean, all this really comes back to ensuring that there is few as possible barriers to getting access to, to health care and these tests. I mean, we, we, we talked about, you know, health care coverage. We talked about individuals that are potentially losing their employment and, you know, issues with food security. And it, it's hard to, you know, argue with an individual a person that's trying to weigh the options of, do I pay $150 for a COVID-19 test or do I feed my family? And I, I think, you know, this is where we see, you know, some of the important pieces of this bill really coming forward to talk about, you know, we need to do both because there are widespread therapeutic and economic ramifications to both of those issues. And we really need to take in everyone on board approach to make sure that we're addressing this pandemic and solving some of the healthcare access issues that can be detrimental, not only during the current public health emergency, but could have widespread ramifications for the long period of time after we're recovering. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that too, Michael. I, I couldn't have said that better myself. Where can people find your blog? Obviously, you guys are pretty well educated. I think it comes through in here, and you guys really vet your sources and look at both sides of it. Where can they find your blog if people want to go uh, find you guys a little more? Yeah, sure. We are at um, grassrootsrph.com. So we, we've been posting about you know one blog post a week. We're, and what we really hope to be able to do with uh, the grassroots pharmacist is to help to engage our readers pharmacists, students, you know, other members of the healthcare community to understand the importance of healthcare policy 
and how it can make an impact on their practice of pharmacy and the patients that they're taking care of. And I, I know that both Nima and I have been engaged in grassroots advocacy campaigns previously, both you know on, on social media and through professional organizations. And we've both seen that a lot of individuals want to get involved. If we share something on social media, we see people reaching out, looking for ways to get engaged, write letters to legislators, reach out to their elected leaders. But there's sometimes a gap in where health policy can make an impact on the practice of pharmacy. And there's often a gap in where individuals even start in forming a relationship with their elected leaders and reaching out, writing letters, and inviting legislators out to their pharmacy to see what the practice of pharmacy is really like. So we, we hope to, to engage our readers and, and hopefully inspire them that they can make a widespread change through the power of their individual voice just by getting actively involved in the system. I have a feeling I'm going to have you guys on the podcast individually or together sometime in the future coming up just because we have a lot of overlap here. But I really like what you guys are putting out there. I'll make sure to put this in the show notes for people with a link to your website and everything so they can find you. Um, but before we wrap up here, there are two questions I ask every guest. And I don't know if you guys want to collaborate or kind of condense them a little bit so you can do one each. But uh, there's two questions I ask everybody. If you could change one thing about pharmacy, what would it be? Yeah, sure. I, I can take a stab at it. I think if there was one thing I could change about pharmacy, uh, and we're noticing that, Michael and I have both been noticing that with a little bit of the blog, is pharmacy is very pharmacy-centric, right? When we talk about advocacy, when we talk about the, the things that are important to the profession, we only engage with pharmacists, and we only engage on pharmacy-specific issues. I mean, Michael, you know, I'll shout out Michael and some of the work that he's done. He has put out a lot of really good content regarding the immigration detention facilities and how the implications of, of how we treat immigrants who are at the border has an overall impact on public health. And one of the things that we noticed is that that's not something that a lot of pharmacy organizations or pharmacy associations are dealing with, even though it, A, has significant implications on chronic health disease management, and B, uh, it violates what's happening, violates every aspect of the oath that we took as healthcare providers when we graduated. And so, you know, one of the things that I would like to see pharmacy evolve on is not to just talk about pharmacy to pharmacists and not to just deal with things that are pharmacy centric. And I think those are the things that Michael and I are both hoping to kind of, you know, move the envelope or, you know, or, or at least build a narrative or a discussion around is how pharmacists engage with things that are not necessarily just related to pharmacy practice. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And as a pharmacist myself, yeah, I am probably pretty siloed. A lot of my friends are pharmacists and I have a lot fewer friends who are doctors or even nurses. So even though they outnumber us in quite a large number when you look at healthcare overall, but I think that's a very good point there when it comes to pharmacy in general. Uh, maybe Michael wants to answer this one, but either way, if you could change one law about pharmacy, what would it be and why? Uh, I, I mean, I, I can take a stop at this one. Of course, the, the easy answer would be, you know, amending the Social Security Act to include pharmacists as healthcare providers. But, you know, we, we've, I, I know that we've all talked about this. We've heard this a lot, so I won't belabor the point. But something else that I've been, been looking into recently, and I think that we're going to talk about, you know, in the coming days on the blog, is the topic and ideas around scope of practice and the fact that scope of practice for pharmacists is so dramatically different from state to state. I mean, if you look at a pharmacist practicing in New York, 
compared to a pharmacist practicing in California, they can do vastly different things. And, and you know, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm early in my career, but I, I, I sometimes question, you know, is this the way, is this honestly the best way things could be? Or could we change things and better increase the efficiency for how we're practicing pharmacy across the country? So, you know, I, I would like to look more into scope of practice legislation across our states and find ways to streamline some of these ideas to make sure that, you know, pharmacists and patients going from state to state would be able to understand the role of the pharmacy and, and expect similar levels of patient care. Yeah. And just to your point further, I had on an earlier episode, uh, Idaho has just crazy scope of practice where it's basically whatever you want to do, you can basically do it as long as you think you're educated enough to do it. So yeah, it goes all over the spectrum and it's not even a red, white or blue thing when it comes to the, the states, it's just all over and it doesn't even necessarily apply to the political realm of that state. So, Mm -hmm. Hey, thank you guys for coming on today. I appreciate it. And I'll definitely be sharing you guys links probably more on my, on my page here. It'll be on Facebook or Twitter. You guys are, can both be found on there. Where can people find you if they want to find you guys on social media at all? Um, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, we have individual pages as well as pages for the grassroots pharmacist. Okay, great. Uh, as always, you know, thank you guys for coming on. Thank you, people, for listening to the podcast. If you can leave us a review, five-star review, help us get found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're on Pandora now, every single podcast platform you can think of. And as always, thank you for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.